You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. We're so blessed to have so many gifted preachers in our church. Unfortunately, they were all busy today. Uh, no, listen, it's, it's my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. We're looking at uh, John 13. We're starting in verse 1. Uh, so if you have a Bible, grab it uh, and open it to John 13. This is really one of the most profound and touching moments in the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This chapter presents us with such an intimate scene, right? This is the Last Supper. It unveils the depth of Christ's enduring love for his disciples and by extension uh, for each of us. So let's open up to John 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Then Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all who are, not all of you are clean. So in this scene, we see Jesus is gathering with his disciples in Jerusalem before the celebration of uh, the Passover. Now, the Passover was a feast that commemorates the, the liberation of their people from slavery uh, in Egypt. And as I was reading through this chapter, I couldn't help but think, uh, you know, here the disciples are preparing to celebrate with the one who saved their ancestors from physical slavery in Egypt, but who would also save them from spiritual slavery to sin, right? Jesus is sitting there going, hey guys, this is about me. This Passover that you've been celebrating year after year, you're celebrating a freedom that I'm going to bring to completion. Right? Your ancestors experienced freedom from slavery uh, in a physical form, but that was just a foreshadow of the freedom that I will bring to all of my people. Then the passage goes on. It says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus lived his life in t- anticipation of this hour. He knew back in John 2. Do you remember when his mother asked him to turn water into wine? What did he say? Mother, my time has not come. He knew a time was coming. And now Jesus knew this, this was the hour. His time had come. His public ministry was over. And the next 24 hours, Jesus would hang on the cross. 
This was the beginning of the end. And Jesus used these last precious hours to serve and to prepare his disciples. His purpose to depart this world, it was fueled by what? It's by love, by his unfailing, eternal, sovereign, infinite, enduring, grace-filled love for us. A love that had shaped the redemptive plan for mankind from the beginning of the earth. From Genesis till now, the Lord had planned this for us. A love described in John 3.16, that verse we all know so well, for God so loved the world. But there's something more personal about the love referenced here, right? The, the first verse ends saying, Jesus having loved his own who were in the world. Do you hear that? Jesus loved his own he loved the men and women he had spent time with while on the earth. He would love them to the end of his ministry. He led them, he taught them, he, he cared for them. He protected them. But this love for his own doesn't just end with the disciples who were with him while on the earth. John 1.12 says, All who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. See, all who have received him become adopted into his family, his own children. He, he refers to the disciples then as his own. And because of what he was about to do, he calls his disciples today his own. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he looks at you and he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are my own. Isn't that a sweet thing? To know that we are God's own and not just for now, but the passage says here, to the end, to the end of Jesus' earthly life, the end of his time with his disciples, though the disciples would give up on him and even deny him, he never gave up on them. He loved them to the end. To the end also means a love that will never end for us. Jesus will never stop loving his own. It isn't a love that comes and goes, that is here today and gone tomorrow. To the end means a love that reaches to the fullest extent. Some translations say it this way, he loved them to the uttermost, infinitely. Beyond anything we can understand, Jesus loved us. Meanwhile, Judas is sitting at the table. The devil has been at work. Judas was primed and ready to betray Jesus. Can you imagine? Jesus has spent probably the last three years with Judas, knowing that he's been stealing from the money bag. Knowing that one, on this day, he would betray him. Jesus knew this the whole time, and yet he had traveled with Judas, called him his disciple, allowed him into his inner circle, his closest of friends. And for Judas, he saw Jesus up close. Think about that. He watched Jesus perform miracles raised people from the dead, and yet he still didn't believe. You know, as I think about Judas, I think of some of my non-believing friends. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation with someone, but they say things like, you know, if God came right here and performed a miracle right in front of my eyes, then, then I will believe. Listen, Judas <laughs> walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, traveled with Jesus. He was there with him while he healed the sick. He made the blind see, raised people from the dead, and yet he still didn't believe. The truth is, if God came right now, not everyone will believe. And yet Christ loves us. 
an enduring love. And then he gets up from the table and does something that none of his disciples expected. He got down on his knees and he washed each of the disciples' feet. Now, at that time, this would have seemed, well, absolutely crazy, really. The washing of feet would be something that the lowest-ranked servants would do, like lowest of the low. In fact, there were even some who thought that someone of Jewish descent should never wash feet at all, but that it should be reserved for the Gentile slaves only. This was an extreme act of servanthood that Jesus was demonstrating here. It would have been absolutely unthinkable in that culture that the master would wash his, his disciples' feet. Now, why, why was this a thing that they did? Uh, I mean, we didn't wash your feet on your way in this morning. Um, if we did, it would be like blocks of ice as you, <laughs> you enter. But why was this a thing? Why did they wash feet? Well, it was actually a common practice in this day, especially when you gathered for a meal, um, because uh, the men have w- would have come in with their feet covered in dust and dirt. They would have worn sandals, and the primary mode of transportation was, was walking, um, and they didn't have paved roads like we had today. They didn't have sewers, you know, the, the, the section of the street that takes all the nasty stuff away. Um, so people would have some pretty grimy feet from traveling. They also didn't have dining tables like we have today. You know, when we think of this meal, we often picture Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, right, where you have a high table and they're all sitting in chairs with their legs tucked under the table. Well, it didn't actually look like that. See, Jews and Romans, they didn't sit up at a table. In fact, they reclined on couches and cushions, uh, and it was a low table that was closer to the ground, with their feet laid out either behind them or, or beside them. So imagine laying at a dining table with someone's feet right next to you. Yeah, there's, there's a real practical purpose here why we clean, why they would clean feet. No one would want to eat with their feet so close uh, to their food. So there was a practical reason for Jesus to wash their feet, but there was also a, a spiritual reason as well. See, Jesus washed their feet as a symbol of purification. It was a picture of what Christ would do for them on the cross. He would cleanse them of their spiritual filth, their sin, the dirt that they were bringing in with them. When Christ tries to wash Peter's feet, he says, you shall never wash my feet, right? Peter refuses. How dare you, my master, wash my feet? And Jesus responds, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You see, Peter had to accept this from Jesus, just as we do. If we don't accept this humble servant uh, or service of Jesus to cleanse us, we have no part with him. So Peter then says, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And to that, Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. See, throughout scripture, we see the illustration of being bathed as a a picture of, of spiritual cleansing. See, Jesus taught there is an initial bathing, right? We are bathed, we are cleansed, that is distinct from an ongoing washing. See, what he's presenting here is this. We need to be bathed by our trust in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And this occurs once and for all. And then once bathed, we are saved. Yet there is still this ongoing need to come to the Lord and wash our feet. As sin creeps in, we need to regularly come back and have our feet washed. 
So Jesus, assuming the role of a servant, cleaned his disciples' feet. And in doing, in doing so, he acted out a parable for the disciples. Jesus' new actions speak louder than words. So when he wanted to teach the proud, arguing disciples about true humility, he didn't just say it, he actually showed it. He showed it in a way that illustrated his whole work on behalf of his own. I love the way that the Enduring Word commentator uh, describes what Christ did in this scene. See, Jesus rose from supper, a place of rest and comfort, reclining at the table, just as he rose from his throne in heaven, a place of rest and comfort. He chose to leave that throne. Jesus laid aside his garments, taking off his covering, just as he laid aside his glory, taking off his heavenly covering. Jesus took a towel and girded himself, being ready to work, just as as he took the form of a servant and came ready to work. Jesus poured uh, water into a basin, ready to clean, just as he poured out his blood to cleanse us from the guilt and penalty of sin. And finally, Jesus sat down again after washing their feet, just as he sat down, at the right hand of God the Father after cleansing us. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what Christ is modeling here? Every motion, every action that Jesus does in this scene is symbolic of what he has been doing, what he will do for his disciples, and what he's done for us today. So let's continue in verse 12 here. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He, ate who, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus here provides the second reason for this live-action parable. He is modeling to the disciples what they are to do. This is a final illustration from the master to the student. The answer to the final exam, do as I do. Wash one another's feet. They may not have fully understood the illustration from a, a spiritual standpoint yet here, but they definitely understood the act of service that was just performed for them. As their teacher and Lord, Jesus commanded them to show the same humble, sacrificial love to one another, the enduring love of Jesus. The example of Jesus should mark their attitude and their action in the same way that it should mark our attitude and our action. Then it continues in verse 21, and we see who is going to betray him. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. They had no idea. 
One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, but what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Interesting here that Jesus very clearly identifies who his betrayal will be. And he does so with a troubled spirit, right? There's something here. Jesus knew that this was coming, and yet he was troubled. Why? Well, I've got to wonder. He, he loves Judas. He's broken over what Judas is going to do. He wasn't emotionless about this part, about Judas's part in all of this. I'm sure it broke his heart. Yet God would still use Judas's deception for good. God uses awful things for good to accomplish what he had come to do. And now by revealing that one of them was a traitor, Jesus showed that he was ultimately in control of this events, right? He was not taken by surprise by any of this. And the disciples don't seem to catch on right away, but Jesus clearly felt it was important to assure the disciples that he knew who it was he was in control, and that it was all part of the plan. And the verse continues in 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. A lot of glorifying happening there. We'll unpack that in a sec. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So when Judas left, Jesus knew that everything was set in motion for his arrest, for his trials, his beatings, his crucifixions. And he refers to his death here as his glorification. Crucifixion. The worst possible way you could die. Something the world would consider the worst form of humiliation and disgrace. And yet Jesus declares that he will be glorified in death. And in turn, God will be glorified through him. What Jesus was to accomplish on the cross would be his greatest expression of love for his people, a love for his own, a love that saves, a love that endures. Jesus then gives a new commandment to his disciples. Now, this command wasn't new per se. Um, The word new here actually means the opposite of like worn out. It's a, a fresh reiteration of a new command, right? That his disciples are to love one another. Jesus didn't ask them to love him in some remarkable way, love Jesus. His command actually was to love one another, to love others, to love fellow Christians. See, Jesus' desire was for there to be something different about those who call themselves disciples 
of Christ. There should be a bond of love between fellow Christians that reflects the way Christ has loved us. This is a, a service love, a love that is it's compelled to action. It's a, a love that is compelled to wash each other's feet. When we live out the gospel every day by serving one another, we do just that. We prioritize the needs of others ahead of ourselves. We get low so we can elevate others. We, we serve in our church using the gifts that God has given us to bless those around us. We also, get this, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. With the Lord's strength, he calls us to extend grace and forgive each other. Imagine a church full of people who are as loving and eager to forgive as Jesus. Do you think that would change this town? you think that would change this world? Absolutely. So Jesus washing the disciples' feet was not simply about Jesus' death on the cross for sin. And it isn't just about loving other Christians. It was actually about something deeper than that. How do we know that? Did you notice that Jesus washes Judas's feet? Judas is right there. He's one of the disciples. Jesus, the one influenced by the devil, the one who would betray him. And Jesus also washes Peter's feet. Peter, the one who will openly deny Christ in front of men, even after Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. See, the deeper principle here is actually the act of Christ lowering himself taking a lowly servant's position and sacrificing himself for the sake of others, believers and non-believers alike, because he loves them. That's why he talks about greatness in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If the master takes the lowliest position, then guess what the servant should be just as low, oh, sorry, then the servant should be just as lowly as the master. The same principle of humility and of self-sacrifice through agape love, it was, it's taught in Philippians as well. See, here, here's the encouragement to Christians in the church at Philippi. Chapter two, verse three says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, Jesus emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sin is actually underpinned by this deeper principle. It's as if the death of Jesus on the cross is the tip of the iceberg, and below the surface we see Jesus emptying himself, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped. This explains his command to his disciples that they go and they do likewise. He wants them to be servants like him to take the lowly position, to be a blessing to others the way that he has just blessed them. And that's the beauty of this scene. Jesus, in one act of foot washing, has taught multiple principles to his disciples and to us. So a couple of thoughts for you this morning. First, the enduring love of Christ draws us into relationship. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, 
man, I don't deserve the love of Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, my sin is too great. He can't possibly love me. I'm so far gone. If you only knew what I've done in my past, I'm so ashamed. Listen, he loves you. Maybe you find yourself trying to please God and you just keep doing and doing, thinking that you need to constantly earn Jesus' favor and you just feel worn out and and broken. He loves you. Or maybe you're sitting here feeling like a failure. You feel like like you failed to be a godly parent or a godly spouse. Or maybe you feel like you've failed to represent Christ well at work or at school. You try to read your Bible every day, but you're struggling to make it a priority. How could God love me when I have failed him so much? Listen, he loves you. The truth is there isn't a single one of us that deserves God's love. None of us deserve the saving grace of Jesus. Not one of us can earn it on our own. We all fall short. But guess what? Because of God's grace and goodness, a relationship with him is available to us all. Why? Because Jesus loves you. Because you're created in his image. You were knit together in your mother's womb. You are precious in God's eyes. So don't think you are too far gone for the grace and love that God has for you. Don't be ashamed of your dirty feet. Bring all that you are to the Lord, and he is willing and able to set you free. Second thought, the enduring love of Christ drives us to repentance and change. Maybe for some of you, you're sitting here today thinking, yes, I know Jesus loves me. I've heard it since Sunday school. I I get it, and I've accepted it, but I'm clinging to something that I just can't let go of. Maybe you have a website that you have hidden on your phone or an app, and when no one is looking, you have a little peek. You know it's wrong, but a little can't hurt, right? You'll, you'll stop one day. He loves you. Maybe you've lied to cover up the truth, and you've lied so many times, there's no way to backtrack, so you keep living the lie in fear that someday someone will find out. Listen, he loves you. Or perhaps you relish the opportunity to hear the latest gossip, you enjoy being the one with the inside scoop or, or the trustworthy person that someone has confided in about a tender morsel. It feeds, it, it feeds something in you that makes you feel better about yourself. He loves you. He loves you so much he chose to die for that thing you're clinging to, that sin you keep going back to, like a dog that returns to its vomit. It's the thing Christ hung on the cross for because he loves you. Give it up. Give it to him. Confess it to the Lord. Confess to a brother or sister. Step into the freedom Christ provides. Freedom from sin. Freedom from condemnation. Romans 6.18 says you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Because of this truth, bringing our sin into the light actually causes our sin to lose all of its power over us. What was once dark is replaced with light Christ's enduring love for us should motivate us to repent quickly and often. Get those feet back in the wash basin. I'm going to invite our worship team back up as we, as we close. The last thought for the, this morning is this. The enduring love of Christ motivates us to serve others. Maybe you're sitting here enjoying being on the receiving end of church. I know I've done this. You come each week, you enjoy the worship, you get inspired by the message, and then go about your life. You become a consumer of church. 
Did you know that on any given Sunday we have between 55 and 65 people serving here every Sunday? Did you know that? There is tremendous opportunity to serve here. You heard from Jesse this morning. We have a need. We have kids who need to be cared for so adults can be here and worship and kids can be upstairs hearing about Jesus Christ. Serve. Listen, you have a unique gift. You've been tailor-made by God to use for his glory. Maybe it's time to put that to good use here. Or maybe you're sitting here and you know the Lord has been nudging you to reach out to that neighbor who's going through a tough time. Or maybe there's someone at school who's being bullied and you have the opportunity to be a friend, even if it damages your relationship with the popular crowd. Christ has called us to empty ourselves, to humbly serve those around us, to be salt and light, not out of guilt. Don't misinterpret this. It's fueled by what Christ has done for us. It should be an overflow. And the more we do this, the more we see it show up in our lives. When we make less of ourselves and more of Christ, it shows up in the way we treat our spouse. It shows up in the way that we parent our kids. It shows up in the way that we go to work, the way we go to school. It's no longer about us working for a paycheck, going to school for a grade. We are working for the Lord. It changes the way we treat that person that cuts in front of us in line at the grocery store. You know that person. It changes our hearts when we're driving behind that person who thinks the speed limit is 20 kilometers less than it is. Right? It changes the way we look at the homeless and in need with empathy and compassion. We become of such greater use to the Lord because we are less selfish and more selfless. So this morning, as we reflect on John 13, let us be moved by the enduring love of Christ, a love that welcomes us into relationship with him, a love that leads us to repentance, a love that motivates us to love others as Christ has loved us. May this love transform us. May this love compel us to love and serve others with the humility and selflessness of Christ. Let us leave this place knowing that we are loved carrying the light of Christ into the darkness of the world, loving as he is loved to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for this story, Lord, how each moment, each action, you were demonstrating something for us to learn, something that welcomes us into relationship with you. Lord, you've demonstrated such sacrificial love for us. May we respond. Lord, I pray for those who are feeling lost, Lord, that there would be an opportunity to reconnect with you today. I pray for those who are here who don't know you, who don't know the love of Christ, Father, I pray that you would move them to come forward at the end of this service to be prayed for, to meet you. God, I pray that as we leave this morning, we would know your love in a greater way. In your name I pray, amen.